Welcome. It's great to have you all here with us. You know, this week I was talking to my young son, and I was telling him about his incredible potential. I told him, you know, you could be a scientist, an engineer, you know, the sky's the limit. And he got kind of sad. And I said, what's the matter? He said, well, you said the sky's the limit, but I wanted to be an astronaut. <laughs> so now we have no limits in our family. So, Well, it's time to turn it over to someone with no limits. It's Dr. John with the Technology Spotlight. Well, tonight we're going to be talking about... <gasps> Have you ever gotten hiccups at a bad time, you know? <laughs> Isn't that what hiccups sound like? Plus, well, sort of, you know. And uh, you, you can't get them to go away, and they just keep coming. Remember, if you've never had hiccups, I don't know if there's anyone like that, but if you've never had hiccups, they just come, and you have no control, and a lot of times you don't even know where they came from, and you can't get them to go away. And if you close your mouth and hold your breath, you can make it so it doesn't make a noise. But then if you forget and you relax, then all of a sudden, <laughs> you know, another one, <laughs> startle everybody, or yourself at least. Wouldn't it be amazing if we actually had a cure for hiccups? People have been working on this technology for a long time. Remember blowing in the paper sack, you know? Uh, or maybe there's the one where someone jumps out and scares you, you know? They scare you really bad. They tried that on me, and you know what I said? <laughs> Right? <laughs> Didn't work. <laughs> Still got hiccups. And so um, there are a lot of other ideas, and we could go on and on. Holding your breath, drinking water upside down, and a lot of different technologies, <laughs> if you can call them that. But a lot of them have side effects. You know, if you're drinking upside down, you have to be really careful or you get water out of your nose. <laughs> problems like that. So uh, the big question is how do you tell whether or not something works. What, how do you tell if something actually cures hiccups? And I want to show you the new tech of the week. It is the Hickaway. It's actually a product to cure the hiccups. Now, does this really work? Is someone going to pay, you know, $14 on Amazon or whatever to get a cure for hiccups? And you really wouldn't be able to tell except they did a scientific study. And if we were to do a scientific study on scaring someone to scare away the hiccups, uh, I'm pretty sure it wouldn't pass the test of science, if you know what I mean. But when they tested their hiccaway thing, they got a 92% success rate, and it's almost instant. Now, compared to anything I've tried, that's pretty amazing. <laughs> and so I had to know more, right? And uh, incidentally, this weekend, out of the blue, and it hasn't happened for a long time, I got the hiccups. And it's like, oh my goodness, I need to try this. <laughs> um, but uh, I, so I, I tried it, and it worked almost immediately for me. So that's anecdotal evidence. But again, that's not the same as a study. And it's amazing how well these studies work. Let's take a closer look at their hypothesis and why they thought this would work. This is an animation that kind of shows how hiccups work. If, as much as we know about them, right? So there's the diaphragm down there, and as the diaphragm contracts, it causes that air movement, and then also your vocal cords contract, and that's what gets the <gasps> noise, right, as you uh, are breathing. And so those two things uh, happen at the same time. Now, the secret here to get rid of the hiccups, hiccups is to contract the diaphragm and engage the 
what's that little thing called? The little thing that covers your airway, you know, the epiglottis, I believe. And uh, you can see it in the animation. It's a little thing that moves. That's the thing that keeps you from choking every time you swallow or take a drink because you have the path that goes to your lungs and the path that goes to your stomach. And the food's supposed to go down one and the air goes down the other one. And if you get it wrong, then that makes you choke, right? And so um, there's something going on that we don't all the way understand uh, with hiccups. But if we will busy out those two things, the diaphragm and the epiglottis, then that's what makes the hiccups go away. It somehow engages the nerves in that area and releases that thing. So we have the hypothesis. Now how do we prove it? We had to do the, an experiment and they got the, like uh, over 100 people, it was like 250 people to do this experiment where they waited till they had the hiccups and they tried it and then they wrote down their results and they collected all this information. That's where they got the 92% success rate from. Let's take a closer look at how this works because it's actually simple enough that you could make your own. In fact, that's what I did. <laughs> so uh, it's just a straw that you drink water through. But at the very bottom of the straw, there's a plug that restricts the flow of water. And the idea is that in order to get any water out of the straw, you have to really suck. And that suction is what engages your diaphragm and keeps it busy. And then at the same time, you're getting water into your mouth that you have to swallow. And so that engages the epiglottis. And you know, if you think about uh, methods like drinking upside down, that probably almost does the same thing, only it's a little harder. <laughs> and so maybe that's why some of these ideas work, you know? But this is much easier to use. Uh, so let's think about how you would make one of these. All you would need is a straw that you can plug, maybe with your fingers or with something else, but you have to plug it just the right amount because you need to have that section where it's a little hard to drink or to pull through the straw, but you have to get enough that you're really engaging that swallowing. And so if you can get that just right, you could make your own or you could buy one. <laughs> but you know, I think this is pretty cool. I think finally someone's actually invented a way to <laughs> cure hiccups. <laughs> like, <gasps> surprise, right? <laughs> so now I'm just waiting for them to figure out a cure for when I hit my funny bone, you know? <laughs> we're still working on that one. Uh, and we're out of time, and that's all the tech we have the time for. <laughs> all right. Now it's time for a Breakthrough Moments in Science with Tobias. sometimes when there's an invention all of a the sudden there's an opening for a bunch of new inventions and that's what we're going to talk about tonight um, we're going to talk about something that we didn't know we needed till we got something else okay and that's you know you're sitting there at the TV watching your show or doing whatever and you don't have your remote maybe you lost it maybe the kid walked off with it but now you're there remoteless okay <laughs> and then you're like oh man the show's so boring. But to change it, I'd have to get up and walk all the way over there and change the channel. It's not that bad. Yeah. But, okay, the, the TV remote. We didn't know we needed a TV remote till we got a TV. And then all of a sudden, 
there was this new need for a remote control for that TV. And that kind of became the new race. Now, some people are like, you don't need to make a new remote. I already got me one. It's named Gregory. <laughs> Gregory, go change the channel. All right, now give me some milk. <laughs> okay, no. But, you know, when, when we started, you know, having all these TVs going everywhere in households, people started wanting a way to be able to change the channel without having to get up, okay? And so there was kind of this race for how can we make something you can actually sit in the chair and run the TV from, okay? Now, the first attempt was one of these. Your remote control, and it has a wire, okay? <laughs> this was nicknamed the Lazy Bones, okay? <laughs> they were a little more honest with products back then, <laughs> okay? But it had a wire, and obviously, for obvious reasons, that could get annoying. It's limiting. Obviously, someone could trip over it, lots of things. So that didn't take off incredibly quickly or very much. Well, someone else, and his name was Eugene Pauly, he had an idea. Okay, what could I, what can I wirelessly send some kind of signal with? And he had the thought, well, light. Light can go from here to there. What if I somehow used a light that the person held, and that was the way that they, they somehow signaled to the television to do something? And so that is what he came up with, this, this handheld product. Okay, and this was called the Flashmatic. And if that looks like a flashlight slash garden hose, <laughs> but it's literally a directional flashlight. And what it would do was the TV had four sensors, in, one in each corner. If you would like to power on the TV, you shine the light in that corner. If you want to mute or unmute, you shine in that corner. If you want to go forward a channel, you do that corner, and back a channel, do that one. So you literally had a flashlight, and you would shine it at the corner that you wanted to send a message to. And so this was their product that they started trying to do. Now, some issues started to come up. For example, they started having people say, well, when there's light in the room, other light sometimes interferes. Sometimes it can't see the light. Sometimes it thinks I sh shone the light, and I didn't, and now it's turned off. So they started having problems like that. There were some reliability issues, okay? And so this didn't pick up incredibly quickly, but this idea of taking a flashlight and using this beam of light to hit a sensor in the screen was a really interesting one. So some more attempts at what can I send from here to my TV screen. Well, another one was this Space Commander. Okay, we're getting cooler with names. Uh, this, this was no batteries. This needed zero batteries. Each of those buttons would make this click sound and hit a metal bar, an aluminum metal bar, inside of the remote. And it would, they basically tried to use ultrasound principles and make these frequencies. So if I hit this one, and there's a frequency that I can't really hear too much, but it makes a frequency that the TV is supposed to pick up, and it does that command. So if you have grandparents, okay, and they call the remote, you know, the clicker, this is probably why, okay? <laughs> because it literally was a click, and it would click loud, and the sound was what was being sent to the TV to give it the command. So that was another thing some people tried. If there was a child with a xylophone in the room, it didn't work so well, or it worked too well, and then your child was over there changing channels, okay? <laughs> another one was hand gestures, and people started working, you know, that'd be awesome. You could just say, oh, not this one. Not that one. That's great until there's a fly. Okay. <laughs> Honey, stop changing the channel. Oh, sorry. Okay. 
hand gestures was another attempt, some kind of sensor. Well, actually, we came all the way back to the flashlight idea, only it was a really ingenious way of doing it. Okay, what the flashlight worked really well, except it wor works, you know, there's all this light. So if I'm shooting a flashlight, if there's other light, that's going to interfere. So they started to look at doing an idea of using infrared. Now remember, infrared light is a frequency of light that's different, and it's on a frequency we can't see with our eyes. But it's there, and certain cameras can pick it up, for example. So they started making infrared chips, well, chips with infrared bulbs on them, like this one here. And you see that little bulb on the top. So they have a sensor in the TV that is trying to block out a lot of the light that we can see, but it can really pick up infrared light. And so when you use the remote and you do a command, the infrared bulb blinks. Remember, we're talking about electric, electronic data, so ones and zeros in that computer language. It gives a pattern that's a command, and that pattern is picked up by the TV that's watching for infrared light. So a lot of the other light that we see, it's not seeing, and kind of vice versa. I mean, if you pick up a remote and you look at it, generally you're not going to pick that up unless you're super. No, <laughs> well, anyway, but cameras can. So here's a here's a video of a view of a remote with a camera, and this is something you can do at home. Um, if you take us, is this is this remote dead? You can take your cell phone and kind of look at it with your camera. And is there a light flashing? Um, that could be a way. It's maybe not that short of a way, but the camera can see some of that infrared light flashing, even though you can. So this kind of became one of the standards that's used even today to being able to communicate via wireless to your devices are these flashing lights. So whenever there's a new invention, just remember that a whole nother batch of new opportunities just opened. Thank you. And now, introducing Roger Billings. I love sparklers. Yes, you do. I love uh, remotes. <laughs> this one, as you can tell, is not an ordinary remote. It does have that little light here. Let's see if I can blink it and you can see it. He said cameras can see it. He might not have mentioned yeah, that it has to be it. No, that's, that's a reflection. I don't see it. You see it blinking. Can you see it blinking? Yeah, there's two little lights blinking. Yeah. You can see it, huh? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, this, this is a, a very good remote. Uh, if, if you're looking for a remote, I recommend this one. It's called the Peugeot remote. <laughs> Does it control me? Let's find out. <laughs> that was the smile button. <laughs> that, I wonder what this frown button is. <laughs> okay, this is getting carried too far. <laughs> Yeah, that was, that was pretty interesting, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Boy, we have a great group here tonight. A lot of really wonderful people. We got the potato kid here. The potato kid? No, it's the bread kid. Oh, the bread, the, the bread, the bread guy's here. The bread guy. Hi, bread guy. 
they see it. And let's see who else we got. Oh yeah, sunshine. We're we're in good shape. So we have a group of very creative minds that meet together once a week to change the world. Mm -hmm. And remember last time we talked about housing and how we have a housing shortage. And so uh, I've asked for ideas and input on what we can do to come up with our solution. And uh, of course, some of you that are new don't realize that I'm really serious. Do you have anything you want to share? I have some. All right, let's mm -hmm. hear some of the things that came back and then I want to show you what happened this week, okay? Some of them like the name of the Enchanted Cottage. The Enchanted <laughs> Cottage. I think I threw that out, didn't I? <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's a pretty nice name, isn't mm -hmm. it? The Enchanted Cottage. And you can put it in the Enchanted Forest. That's right. They like that part, too. Yeah, that's good. All right. Um, they like the fact that we can insulate it to save energy. Mm -hmm. And they like the tornado-proof idea. Yes. And um, there's a student in Maui. They went to go get some wood, and there's no wood available to finish their kitchen. And it's very, very scarce and very, very expensive. And they're also very intrigued with the home of the future, they're calling it. <laughs> the home of the future. Mm -hmm. Well, it is time for us to do something. I did notice this week that the cost of, of wood and some of the building supplies is coming down a little bit, which is good. So maybe we're getting the supply chain going a little bit. But there is so much construction, and there is a real shortage of housing. And a lot of houses are being bought up and, and rented back to people, and it's getting harder and harder to be able to have the dream of owning a home. Um, was a couple that th thought it would be nice to maybe get a new house, so they put their house on the market. They figured out what the house was worth, and so they listed it with a realtor for that price. And three weeks later, they sold their house for almost 40% above what they listed it for because people oh. just kept bidding higher and higher and higher. So they sold their house for a ton of money and then they went out to buy one and they couldn't find one anywhere near the money they had. There's just a real, real demand. So housing is a challenge and it's one that we need to think about. Our philosophy on this planet in the last few years as we've learned how to manufacture and so forth is buy, use, and trash. Uh, this remote's not working. <coughs> Excuse me, that, that was uncalled for. So we just, we just discard things. And we have a, a lot of big landfills and a lot of resources are mined out of our earth. We process them, we make products, we use them for a while, and away they go. Um, have you ever heard of the 30-month itch? <laughs> Not the 30-month one. 30-month mm. mm. itch, that's uh, two and a half years. And some people say that people have a 30-month itch to have a new car. <laughs> About 30 months into owning a car, you think, you know, it sure be nice to have a new one. And so they, uh, they think, well, uh, I'll go buy a new one. Wouldn't it be interesting if we could use the resources to go to make a car for maybe 60 months? Mm -hmm. 
or even for 60 years. You say, well, 60 years is a long time. Well, it really is. Homes um, in our country very often don't last very long. We, we build them quick, we wear them out, we tear them down, we build another one. And some parts of the world, they have a lot of very, very, very old homes. Of course, we're a fairly young country. But it just is exciting to me to think that we use our resources and they become more permanent. Uh, as I was thinking about the ideal hydrogen car that I'd like to see us build, I thought about a car that could last. I mean, you buy one car and it lasts you know, your whole life. But I had to figure out how to get around the 30-month itch. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of 30 months, you're tired of it. You want a new one. So here's my idea. You drive into the dealer in your ancient 30-month-old car. <laughs> Nearly wore out. At least it needs to run through the car while it's dirty. So you take it in there and say, okay, I, I'm filling a new car. So they take your car back. They peel off the flexible skin. They put on the new body type you want. Put on the new skin. They put that stuff in that makes it smell like a new car. <laughs> that's important. That's what you know. Huh? And there you go. But the real important parts, you know, if they're made out of durable materials, like instead of steel, maybe we could use stainless. So it doesn't rust, doesn't grow, it lasts a long time. Then all of a sudden, we could use our resources a lot better. So we need to think about that with our housing, too. It's nice to go through and remodel to redecorate, to fix it up, to uh, new fun stuff is great. But wouldn't it be nice if homes could have real durability? So here we are talking about it, and I throw out some ideas. We're getting a lot of ideas back. I warned you last time that I was going to run this by our designer slash artist, uh, Ryan. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, Ryan is, is amazing. So he took the things that we talked about, the ideas, the concepts, and he came up with a rendition. And I wanna, I wanna show it to you and see what you think. There it is. That is what he got out of Science Live last time. And you notice he calls it ELSI. Mm -hmm. And can you see what the acronym is for? I can. What is it? Economic Living System Experiment. I live an experimental life. <laughs> yeah. But, but look, it's, at it. it's got the curves. It does. Which is going to make it very hard for the wind to get a hold of it. He's, uh, but he's made it very open, livable, mm -hmm. beautiful. If, uh, you know, your parents bought you a home like that when you graduate from the Sellis Academy, that's really nice. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be ashamed to live in it, would you? It's got buildings right there on the side. Yeah, did you see that? Can we zoom in? Is there any way to zoom in on the, like on the side of the house? More, more, more. How much zoom? Well, we were doing good. That's the back and forth. Do you like that? <laughs> now, would you like to see the up and the down? Oh, there there we, we go. go. Oh, can you see it over there? Yeah, he just built that in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what he wants. You see? <laughs> That's a neat looking house. All right, now we can zoom back. You notice all of that glass and the way that looks there, and uh, that's the zoom back. 
Okay, here comes the other Zubek. <laughs> Got it. Um, I think we could build that. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's interesting how we were throwing around needs. We started out with needs, and quite often, necessity is the mother of invention. That's the first step. We, we really need something to solve this problem. And then you start thinking of things that you might be able to do it. At first, it looks so easy. You start out right at the top of the optimism <laughs> curve. And then when you start trying to do it, down it goes, right? Well, we said that it's got to be something that people would be proud to live in. Yes. And I think we now have a concept that is not just vague, it's now something we can look at and see, and then we can start analyzing it, and what about this, what about that. We've got the angle in front, or excuse me, on the sides, which is curved so the wing can't grab it. In front, we do have an angle the wing can grab at a little bit. Mm -hmm. We'll have to figure that out, because we want to make it so that this is the place to be when there's a tornado. We want to make it super safe. You notice how we have the overhang. That allows us to orient the house so that the winter sun, which is farther in the south, comes shooting in and gives warmth to the house. But in the summer, sun's up above and it's shaded. Keep all that heat out. Uh, it does support the solid polymer concrete we were talking about. This one, you notice, has an upstairs. Mm -hmm. And that could be just light coming in or it could be bedrooms. Kind of an exciting concept to Quite think intriguing. that we could build this. Um, I, I would love to live in a house like that. That's really neat. I think mm -hmm. people would be really proud to be able to live in yeah. something like that. And this is, this is one week into the project. Yeah. Okay. How soon do you think we could actually build something? You? It depends on the priority. Yeah. Is the priority to get this done by the end of the week? Or is the priority to get it right? And in this case, we want to have fun doing this. We want to get it right. We want to make it be uh, all that it can be. And so we'll spend some time kind of thinking about it. But I think we could build a model of this. Me too. Uh, and it would be really fun. Stay tuned and watch it evolve. And remember, a lot of the things are the things that we do inside. Now, this has got to be built with a, a real minimum of labor. It's got to be built using materials that are going to be very durable and strong. Uh, it's got to have that incredible insulation, and it's got to be maintenance-free. I mean, when, when you need maintenance, you either need to just have a clicker <laughs> or you need to not need maintenance. But I think, mm -hmm. it's, I think it's really exciting. Thank I you, Ryan. Yeah. Job well done. Now, there's something big to talk about today, and that is the, uh, the new look, the website for IST. And I want to look at that for a minute, the Institute of Science and Technology. There, it, there we are. There we are. Uh, yeah. Let's just see now. If you look at the front of that building, you see the IST up on the top. And if you go down to the far left, top corner, right up there, that's where, where we're filming. Isn't that fun? That's where we're broadcasting from live tonight. And this particular uh, little lecture hall is called the Hawkins Lecture Hall. 
named after one of our founders, Willis Hawkins. And it's, it's kind of fun to see how that all fits together. Well, IST is a school that was founded back in 1985 when I was but a child. <laughs> I mm -hmm. still am. <laughs> Young heart. But it, it was founded by uh, some amazing science minds of people that saw a need for a little bit different kind of college-level education, uh, a kind of education that not only taught science and engineering, but also taught applied science, uh, that taught things like uh, entrepreneurship and how to do projects and things. Um, I really relate to this because in my own personal career, I had a very hard time deciding what I was going to major in. I wanted to build hydrogen cars. And so I, I asked people at, at my university, so what should I major in? And I had a wonderful chemist that said, well, if you're gonna do hydrogen cars, you've gotta, you gotta study chemistry. Chemistry is the study of all chemicals and materials, and you need material. Hydrogen is a chemical. <laughs> and another just in the other side of the building said, and by the way, he happened to be a physicist. He said, you need to study physics. Physics is the one branch of science that covers everything and how it works. If you know physics, you can do anything. And then someone says, yeah, but engineers, they're the ones. I mean, scientists talk about it, scientists study it, and they study it, and they study it. Engineers use it to make stuff, make them happen. So I ended up doing a composite degree with chemistry, physics, electrical, mechanical, and chemical engineering. Wow. And that turned out to be a lot of diversity. But right as I was finishing up my university experience, I had a, a most amazing thing happen to me, and that was a gentleman who at that time was almost exactly the age I am, came to my university and invited me to be his protege. Now, I think protege's French. I didn't speak French, so when he says protege, I didn't know what he meant. I didn't know if I wanted to be one of those or not. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> when they explained it, I said, okay. and. The next year of my life was absolutely one of the most important. The gentleman was named Bill Lear, and Bill Lear was, uh, was a legend. He was an amazing uh, American scientist, innovator, engineer, and he did some, some things that were, were so exciting. Uh, Motorola, have you ever heard of Motorola? Mm -hmm. uh, Motorola is a company inspired by the fact that Bill Lear could make a radio small enough to go in the dash of a car. And up to that time, the common understanding of radio receivers was that you had to have a great big coil, way too big to go in the dash, and, and he was the one that realized it could be very small and so he built this small radio, and he and an associate created a company, Salem. They originally called it Motor Radio, and then it later became shortened for Motorola. Another company, Lear Siegler, uh, 
And of course, the one that is best known is Learjet. Uh, Bill Lear wanted to make a jet for executives. And this was in the late 50s, in a time when jets had just come onto the, the stage of, of the world. And uh, they were starting to make uh, military aircraft and even starting to make some airlines that were going to be jet powered. Jets are neat because they uh, have some, some fans, some turbines, that grab air coming towards the engine and compress it into this little chamber. In fact, <clears throat> I have the shape of a jet engine right here. And if you can imagine air coming in here as airplanes flying, now this looks like water, but just, it, it's really air, it's just an illusion. Okay, very good illusion, I might add. But there are compressors here to bring in the air, plus you're flying, and that rams the air into the, into the chamber. When it gets inside here, you spray in fuel and burn it. And so as the fuel burns, it gets hot, and all this gas expands and has a lot of pressure. So you have some air coming in, but you have a lot more gas coming out the back because you burned the fuel. And that air that comes shooting out of the back is what propels this jet. The amazing thing about a jet engine, besides the fact that it's so simple, that it's extremely reliable, but the other thing that's amazing is for the weight of the engine, weight's really important in an airplane, jet engines are very light. You can burn a lot of fuel, you can get a lot of thrust, and a little engine can lift a great big bus into the air. <laughs> And when I say bus, I really mean that. Our airlines are bigger than most of our buses. And to think that those things can fly is kind of miraculous. Well, Bill Lear said, you know, that's really neat that we have these airlines, but we're missing something. There are people that are executives in, in corporations and, and others that need airplanes that can take off and go where they want to when they need to. And he says, these new executive jets need to be able to take off in any weather, climb up above the storms so they can get through. Used to be you had to kind of wait for the weather because bad weather, bad storms can be very dangerous for airplanes, but these could go up over. And, uh, and they needed to be fast. So here comes the Learjet, this little teeny plane. It would just carry four passengers in the first model. And it could fly as high and as fast as the airlines. And was there a demand for them? Mm -hmm. There was a, a really, really amazing demand for them. One of the people that um, became a Learjet owner was uh, that singer guy, Frank mm -hmm. Sinatra. Have you heard mm -hmm. of him? Frank Sinatra loved his yeah. Learjet. So did he. And uh, the first time that I ever uh, flew in the Learjet was the day that Mr. Lear came and picked me up to take me home to be mentored. 
And it was such an amazing experience. Uh, that airplane uh, was a lot better than any hot rod. You know how if you get in a, in a really nice sports car, you can get in, push the gas down hard, and it takes off so fast it pushes you back into your seat. But if you like that sensation, then can you imagine a Learjet? Some people call a Learjet two jet engines with wings because <laughs> they were so powerful for this little plane. And Bill Lear just really, really loved this. I don't know if we can find the, the shot of this, but I, I just want to tell the story again because it is amazing. So we got in the Learjet. Uh, one of the real problems they had with the Learjet was the door. Learjets fly so high that there's not enough oxygen for humans to breathe. Anybody that would fly that high would pass out because the air is so thin. So they could do like they did with some of the military aircraft. They could make you wear an oxygen mask and you'd have tanks of oxygen you would breathe. But what they did in the Learjet is they made it into a pressure container. So it was pressurized inside, inflated like a balloon. And that meant that with that pressure, there was enough oxygen to breathe, to just breathe normally. But in order to do that, the windows have got to be strong. And the real problem is when you close the door, it can't just close. It's got to sill, and it's got to be really strong to hold that pressure. So you can have a pressurized cabin. So, uh, and let me show you this, this shot of a Learjet. So here it is, and uh, the, the Learjet has the door that they're going in there. Now, you can see it's up a little bit off the ground, so you've got to have steps to go up. And the inside the plane's kind of crowded. They're trying to keep it as small as they can so it takes less fuel. And so they had a real problem trying to make a door that was big enough for an adult to get in and then they had to have a place to put the steps. And then they had to have a door that would close and would seal tight enough to hold that pressure. And they tried and tried and tried. And finally, the engineers came to Bill Air and said, no, you just can't do it. You're going to have to make the plane a little bit bigger so you can put the steps there. And Bill Air says, no. That night, he went home and designed the, the door you can see there. If you look at the bottom of the door, it's got the three steps. That's part of the door. And the top part is up above, and the door splits in half, and the two halves come together when it closes. That's one of Bill Lear's touches on the airplane. And it's kind of a neat thing. So I went up steps just like that. I got in the Learjet. He fired up the engines. We taxied out to the end of the runway. And as we got there, uh, they always check out everything before they take off. They run up the engines a little bit. He did that. And then he got right out on the runway itself, ready to take off, radioed in, Learjet, ready to depart. And then he pushed up the throttle. In a car, you push the gas. That's the throttle. In a jet or in an airplane and a jet, the throttle is actually something that you push up with your hand. And you can set it at different power settings. Since this had two jet engines, he had to push two throttles up. Mr. Lair was flying the plane. He had a co-pilot, Gunner, 
uh, who's also his personal cook. <laughs> That's handy. Take your cook anywhere you go. But uh, Mr. Lear was flying it, and I was situated on the jump seat. What that meant is I went right up those steps, right through the little door in the cabin, and right on the back of the, of the cabin door, there was a little seat that would fold up, and you pull it down and sit in it. So it was a jump seat, I guess, it was so you could jump out fast. So I was sitting there, so I was facing backwards. And Mr. Lear was back to back with me, because he was the pilot. So my head was cocked around the side, <laughs> and looking over his shoulder and watching everything, and in a seat belt and trying to figure out, wow, this is neat, a Learjet. I'd never been in a, in a Learjet before, and I was so excited. Well, I saw him push the throttle up. And he pushed it up, and you could hear the engine starting to fire up faster and faster. And then it got to a point where the engines were so powerful that the plane started to shudder. And he had those powerful brakes on so that it couldn't fly. But the engines were so powerful, it was kind of jumping a little bit on the ground. And he just kept going all the way up, full throttle. We're not moving except for these little jumps. And then all of a sudden, he straightened up. He took his toes off the brakes. In, a, in an airplane, you have a brake on both toes, one for the right wheel, one for the left wheel. So you can kind of steer with the brakes. And he let them both go. And that airplane became a speeding bullet. It just it shot at it. And if you want to feel acceleration, that. I do. I want to that, feel that. That's what's like. It is really, really neat. <laughs> And I'm just having a thrill, and my neck's getting caught. But I didn't care. I could see it. We took off. We got up to the speed where the airplane could fly, and Mr. Lear took off. And he flew up to about 10 feet off the ground, <laughs> which isn't very high. No, it's not high at the all. runway was still right there. We're zipping down it faster and faster. And then he cleaned up the airplane. Now, you know what that means. When a, when a pilot cleans up the airplane, he does two things. First of all, he pulls up the lever, which folds up the wheels inside the airplane. You see how the wheels are sticking down there? They are a lot of drag. They, the air hits them as you get going faster and slows you down. So planes have retractable landing gear, and it pulls up inside the fuselage, and the little door shuts so that the plane can go faster. So he retracted the landing gear. And then the wings have flaps that extend back and make the plane fly slower when you're landing and taking off. And after he got up at a blazing altitude of 10 feet, he retracted the flaps, which meant the plane could fly faster. And I'm just taking it all in. We're only 10 feet. Thank goodness we had a really long runway. It was still just right there. When he got the plane all cleaned up, he pointed it up. And I don't mean up like this. I mean straight up. Not many airplanes can do that. He, and he would often say that. You know, this is the only non-military plane that can go straight up. And he did. And here's this plane just charging into the clouds. And when it turned straight up, it was still accelerating. It was still throwing people back in their seats, except guess what? 
Macy was in front of me. I was turned around like this. <laughs> I was facing backwards, so I was laying flat down trying to look, and it was an exhilarating feeling. Now, if we have the shot of the takeoff, I'd like to have you pull that up and show it to you. When Mr. Lear took off this airplane, he took it off like some extremely proud inventor. <laughs> I, I don't think I ever saw anyone take an airplane off like it. They take it off and it kind of climbs up and so sensible. <laughs> but he said, now, you want to see what this thing can do? Well, watch this. Now, while they're finding that clip, I just want to tell you another little story because when Mr. Lear started selling these airplanes, everybody wanted them and he sold them in great, great quantities, but then he hit the fall in the optimization curve. One day, there was a person flying one of these Learjets, and they had a terrible accident, and people died. Mm. And the, uh, the federal government, FAA, did an investigation and found out it was pilot air. It was okay. And so they let him keep, keep flying, and then, not too long later, another one crashed. And again, this time it was an electric problem. It was fine. But Bill Lear told me, he says, Roger, I knew those pilots. And I knew they would not make the mistakes that the investigators were thinking they made. He said, I knew I had something wrong. Now that's kind of a big deal. When you make something new and exciting and innovative, you only want good news. You only want it to be wonderful. And it's never that easy. It turns out that the fact that this airplane could go straight up is what made it a problem. It went up so fast, faster than any other commercial plane, that it created a dangerous situation. And here's the details. Both of those flights that crashed took off in rainstorms. They both took off in rainstorms. And Bill said, what I finally figured out was that the rain had gotten into the tail back uh, trailing edge of the wings and we'd gone up so fast into the cold air that before it could come out, it froze. And then it locked up the steering ailerons on the wings, and they didn't have control anymore. Solution? He just drilled a couple little drain holes on the back of the wing, and the problem went away. Interesting. Um, and then he was back in business. Projects that are earth-shaking, that really make a difference, always have challenges that you're going to have to overcome. A lot of, of what we learn in science and engineering is how to overcome those problems and how to be able to achieve success. And, you know, the, the neat thing about engineering, if you can figure out, oh, an airplane have wings and a tail and you go make one that looks really nice and you fly it, 
there you go. But what if your competitor goes to school and gets a degree in engineering, and then he designs his, only he doesn't do it just by how nice it looks. He designs it using the math of engineering so it's optimized. That means he can go twice as far, I'm making that number up, but he can go further on a tank of fuel than you can. And that's what engineering and science do for you. Now, I want to show you this. We're getting a little behind on time, but can we watch a, a takeoff of Bill Air? So here is what we call a Bill Air takeoff. You can see the back of the wings sticking down. That's the flaps that are going to have to come up. And we're going to pull out here, fire up this engine. And as the plane gets enough speed, it's going to climb off the runway into the air. And it looks like it is airborne. Look, the wheels are folding up, but it's not going up, is it? <laughs> the flaps are being pulled up. Okay, now we got a clean airplane, and we're going to start going up. You say, well, that's not straight up. Uh, oh. Stick around. <laughs> yep, there he goes. Oh, goodness. And that is a thrill. <laughs> and everybody should should get one of those and do that. <laughs> but I want to go back to IST because uh, we have a new website for you to check out. And I am so grateful for the wonderful team that put the effort into this. But now there is so, so much information about the degree. Uh, I, I have to pull this down just a bit and show you on the left because there she is. <laughs> Um, Looks like there he is. In red. Yeah, there she is. Okay. And uh, I just want to report that the data is in, and Dr. Peje Monet is still live. <laughs> Science live. Okay. So that's kind of exciting. But all of the, the new catalogs are out with the new courses. At uh, IST, for you wonderful graduates that are going to come to school here, you've got five degree programs that you can get involved in. One is about uh, education, and especially uh, education technology, learning at a distance, the thing we do with the Selicinol, and we need a lot of good people in that field. We need some two-year degrees, we call those ed techs to go help all of our 6,500 schools around America that need help running, managing their CELUS programs. Uh, and then you can go on through to your bachelor's, your master's, and even a doctorate degree in education technology, or excuse me, distance learning. The second one is uh, cybersecurity. Cybersecurity is one of the most demanding fields there is. Uh, someone said on the news the other day, if you are trained in cybersecurity, you're going to go apply for a job, and uh, when they say uh, how much you need to make for them to hire you, they say, okay, because there's so few candidates. You can name your price. It's just really, really in high demand. It's one of the hottest fields to be in, and cybersecurity is one of our specialty here. Another one is com uh, electrical engineering and computer science. This is the one to get into if you want to program computers and 
learn programming languages, that kind of thing, goes all the way up to the Doctor of Science degree. Then there is applied chemistry. Applied chemistry is chemistry with applies in it. <laughs> I have. Everything at IST is geared towards applied science, not just focusing on the theoretical, but also focusing on what you can do with it. We like to say that at IST, we have a thing called innovationeering, which is the science of putting science to work and using these things of science to do something. And then the last one is uh, applied physics and engineering. And that is a, a physics degree all the way up through the Doctor of Science. Uh, those of you that are studying hard, uh, we are watching your records. And when you get up and ready to graduate, we hope that you'll consider doing this program. One of the really neat things about the new courses that we've just put out this, this, this new website today is that you will be able to study from where you are online. We've developed an online program now for a college program. We still have an on-campus and uh, kind of what we'd like to see is that you start out doing the, the uh, general education requirements from where you are and some of you go all the way there, but, but others, we hope, will, will come to our campus here and will have a chance to give you an experience to get hands-on experience. When you, let, let's just take the degree of cybersecurity, for example, uh, and this applies to the others, but it, it's good to understand. When you get a degree in cybersecurity, an employer that might hire you is going to look at your resume and say, oh, look, you've got a degree from IST. That's good. It's good school. They teach applied technology. I love it. But then, in our cybersecurity degree program, we prepare you to take the certification exams, the independent industry certifications. There's two in the associate degree, there's a couple more in the bachelor's degree, all the way up in the doctor, there's the advanced CISSP uh, certification. If you have the certifications, then the savvy employers are really going to be interested in you. And there's nothing better you could do to get hired than have the degree and the certifications unless you also have experience. <laughs> Employers like experience, and that's why for the ones that decide to come here, we work out employment opportunities where you, while you're going to school, you can work part-time in your field. So you actually get to have a job, and so when you graduate, you've got your degree, you've got your independent certification, now you have to pass the exam to get those, but we prepare you to do that. And then you also have, and I worked at Cybersecurity Corporation for two years, you'll get hired. It's really exciting. Thing. So look yes. at it. There's a lot of good stuff there to read. I, I want to pull down and show you something. Uh, in fact, let's go back up. On the very top of the web page, there's a little word called research. If you click on research and then it says uh, the, the third line or the second line down there, right there, okay. And these are the advanced research capabilities. If you pull this down a little more, a little more, a little more, I want to get to the 3D printer. There it is. Let's 
click on that and make it big if we, it doesn't get too big, but a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger. Oh, isn't that great? So this is the new 3D printer that we've just acquired. This is an amazing machine which we are using to create um, the pieces of a new hydrogen fuel cell. But this, this particular 3D printer will, will print big parts. It can print a jet turbine that you can actually use in an airplane because it prints metal and not just any metal, stainless steel, titanium, titanium aluminide, uh, the kinds of things that you can make real stuff out of. And uh, titanium is what I use in the hydrogen fuel cells and the hydrogen electrolyzers. And we're working on a production hydrogen fuel cell that uh, is in the research stage. These are the kind of projects that you can be involved in. Now let's go back and I want to scroll down a little bit further and I want to show you the, uh, the electronics manufacturing. Can we get on that one a little bit tighter? These are the machines that actually create printed circuit boards. And uh, our graduates uh, run this equipment. They also design the printed circuit boards that uh, these machines load. And our graduates also design the chips that are put on those boards. This is a 2020 model set of equipment. This is absolutely the latest and the best that's available. And it puts parts on these circuit boards that are so small, you almost need a microscope to see them. And so to be able to get experience running the latest and the best equipment impresses employers. And so if you say, yeah, I ran the RCAM 3D printer, that's something. I believe that that RCAM 3D printer is absolutely the most advanced 3D printer in the world. And you should all get one for your science fair project. <laughs> uh, I just tell you the price tag today is $1.6 million, and everyone should have one. <laughs> but the fact that you actually have training and experience on running that kind of equipment does not hurt your resume when you're looking for a job. So some of you are going to want a plan to come and stay in the dorms at IST. But the important thing is none of these options are going to be open and available to you unless you do what Dr. Peget did when you're a, a solo student. Study, 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 study. You need to have this knowledge. This knowledge is gold in the bank. It is. Tell them. It's gold in the bank. <laughs> it's true, though. Why, why true. did it sound more credible when she said it? <laughs> I didn't. It did, yeah, it did. I really didn't. I'm a believer. I've got to go study, so we're going to have to shut down. So I want to go get some gold in the bank. Thank you. See you next time.